The message today is the real triumphal entry. You've probably heard me say this many times over the years if you've been here very long. But uh, one of the men that I admire, in fact, our, the late great pastor Chuck Smith, my mentor in ministry, was also a big fan of a guy named J. Vernon McGee. How many of you have heard? Great Bible teacher. Kind of a novel sounding voice, you know, my beloved brethren. But what a great teacher. And, um, you know, there's certain things that just stick with you as you go through life. And when I heard J. Vernon McGee say that the triumphal entry, which is what they call Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday, J. Vernon said it's actually the tragic entry. And we'll see why as we get into this message today, but I've, I've never forgotten that. It's always stuck with me. And so at the end of the message, we're going to talk about the real triumphal entry. I want to read Luke 19, beginning in verse 29 all the way to 42, but then we're just going to focus in on verses 36 through 42, dig into those few verses. But let's read that together. It came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, he being Jesus, of course, at the mountain called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord has need of it. Now there are some people who say, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God, and that's just something Christians made up. There are many Bible verses to refute that. But notice right here, Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. You see that? Tell him the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. Imagine that Jesus actually knew where the colt would be. But as they were loosing the colt, the owner of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? The guy thought they were stealing his, his donkey. And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. So the guy then accepted the fact that the Lord needed him. They brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt in place of a blanket or something, you know, something to be between Jesus and the donkey. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And that would make them very uncomfortable. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Let's pray. Father God, we pray as we look at this very important chapter in the history of Christianity, we just pray that you would give us insight, understanding, application, and help us to really grasp the significance of this event, one of the most important events in human history. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this event takes place as Jesus and his disciples descend with him down the Mount of Olives from the east, coming down towards the Kidron Valley, would have gone past 
the Garden of Gethsemane there at the, at the base of the Mount of Olives, and then going on over and entering the east gate of Jerusalem. And as you probably know, the, the normal population of Jerusalem at that time was probably about 80 to 100,000 people, so about like Santa Fe, you might say. But because of Passover, all the pilgrims would come from all over that part of the world. All the Jews who were dispersed into other surrounding areas would come home. They were required to come for this feast. And so it's believed that the population could have swelled to upwards of one and a half to two million people. So now we're talking about going from Santa Fe to even bigger than Albuquerque. A lot of people. And they've all, not all of them, but many, many of them have gathered along this roadway that comes down the Mount of Olives from the east side of Jerusalem. And as he went, verse 36, many spread their clothes on the road. So in ancient times, you know, people would honor dignitaries and nobles in this manner. It was a sign of respect, honoring somebody that they considered to be nobility. Now, but also, you wonder, why, okay, why is it called Palm Sunday then? Well, the Gospel of John gives us that additional information. John 12, 12, and 13, the next day a great multitude had come to the feast of Passover when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, which you probably know means save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Again, what's the significance of the, the palm branches? We know the clothes were simply a means of giving honor and respect to someone. But the palm branch was actually the emblem of Judah, which is where Jerusalem, or Judea rather, where Jerusalem is located. And actually, they had coins with the palm branch on them. And so it was a symbol, uh, one of the symbols of the country's riches, the palm trees, the, palm, the date palms. Dates were a very, very important part of their, their agriculture, their produce. And so when Jesus entered Jerusalem, in the springtime, in fact, we'll probably get to this in a moment, but according to the great British um, mathematician, Sir Robert Anderson, he's the one who calculated out the 70 weeks of Daniel, which we studied just a few weeks ago. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson ascertained the exact date that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey as being April 6th, 32 A.D., and so, what's today, the second? We're just, boy, we're almost right there. That's one of the great things about Palm Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Unlike Christmas, which is really an arbitrary date. And, you know, I just saw a program where this guy said, I'm celebrating my birthday today. And this lady says, oh, uh, this is your birthday? He says, actually, I don't really know when I was born, so I just picked this date. And that's kind of what happened with Jesus. I mean, Jesus knew when he was born. But by the time Christmas was established as a celebration, that date was long lost. But we know the date for Palm Sunday and Easter, so this is a very historical celebration. But 
the trees would have been in bloom. So the dates beginning to form on the palm trees. And so all these palm trees are in bloom. They're covering the way with palm branches, the people offering a symbol of great value and luxury. But palms were also a symbol of necessity, not only of value and luxury, but necessity to the Jews. Palm branches represented a gift from God because of their many uses in the people's lives. The palm was so important that when countries in the area went to war, they cut away the enemy's palm branches, causing their enemy to suffer the loss of food and necessities. In ancient times, palm branches also symbolized goodness and victory. There's a great bluegrass gospel song called Palms of Victory. If you can get a chance to look it up online. I love bluegrass music. It's a good song. They were often depicted on coins, as I mentioned. Important buildings would have the palm branch emblem. Solomon had palm branches carved into the walls and doors of the temple, we're told in 1 Kings 6.29. Again, at the end of the Bible, people from every nation raised palm branches to honor Jesus, Revelation 7.9. And my wife and I got to uh, go down recently to Las Cruces, never really spent any time there to speak of. We enjoyed it, and we were kind of excited to see palm trees just that far south of Albuquerque with just a little bit lower altitude, slightly warmer climate. They're able to actually grow palm trees down there. And I grew up in Arizona where they were everywhere. Then I lived in Southern California where they were also everywhere. So it was very refreshing to once again see some palm trees. Um, I'm sure we'll see plenty of those in God's eternal kingdom. But here's the deal. So all the indications here of this, what's happening as Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives on the donkey, the people are celebrating their anticipated victory. What victory was that? Over the Roman oppressors, expecting Jesus to be the reincarnation, if you will, of the warrior King David. But I think they'd forgotten something about David as well, that he was also the shepherd king. Before David was, actually he was a warrior and a shepherd all at the same time because he was fighting off the lions, the wolves, the bears who were attacking his flock of sheep that his father owned. And so they'd forgotten David was the shepherd king whose first position was guardian and protector, or if you will, savior of the sheep. We are the people of his pasture, right? His sheep. And the people had forgotten that. They didn't see that aspect of the Davidic connection with Jesus. First and foremost, he came the first time, not as the warrior king. He's coming back as a warrior. We'll talk about that in a moment. But first he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so they were celebrating, but they were celebrating the wrong thing. Then, as he was now drawing near the, the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. The whole multitude. So in addition to the twelve, again, there were many people gathered, but there were also many of Jesus' disciples, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and many more of Jesus' disciples were in this crowd, and they no doubt were leading the hosannas, the praises, 
And then the rest of the crowd was joining in. And they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they'd seen. And they'd seen a lot of mighty works over the three plus years of Jesus' earthly ministry. But nothing was more dynamic or as fresh in their minds as the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection, which had just taken place a few days before. In fact, as I, I was listening to one of my old messages about Palm Sunday, and, or maybe it was um, Resurrection Day, I can't remember, but I, I mentioned the fact that um, there's another significance here with this event in that Jesus actually had been experiencing a, a great decline in his popularity. Because the closer he got to his impending death, and he knew he was going to be facing death very soon, his teachings became more and more intense, more and more potentially offensive. And when he told the people that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to have relationship with God, he was speaking obviously metaphorically, although some branches of the church have taken it literally. He was speaking metaphorically, but again, because they were dull and not understanding spiritual things, they became very offended when Jesus told them that. And the Bible says many of them began to turn away and follow him no more. He was really drawing a line in the sand, if you will, on what it would really take and what it would really be mean to be one of his disciples. Many people began to turn away, but all of a sudden, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, his popularity skyrocketed once again, because who doesn't want to be raised from the dead, right? <laughs> now, as you and I know from studying the Gospels, that wasn't the first time that he'd raised somebody from the dead. But it was the most open, public, recognizable resurrection that Jesus performed during his time here on earth. And it happened very close to Jerusalem, there in the, in the village of Bethany where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived, very close to Jerusalem. And so the word really got out about the resurrection of Lazarus. The other resurrections took place up in the region of Galilee, which, as you know, was more of a rural area. In fact, Jesus and his disciples were mocked for basically being like hillbillies because they were from the northern region of Galilee. Nazareth was kind of a, you know, a town they made fun of and so forth. Can any prophet or Messiah come from Nazareth? Certainly not. But here we are. Just a wild, crazy celebration going on here. And then... The crowd is rejoicing, praising God with a loud voice for the mighty works. And then verse 38, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You may know this, but this quotation is from Psalms 118, verse 26. Psalm 113 through 118 is called the Hallel. If that word sounds familiar, we get the word hallelujah there. They're connected Hallelujah, meaning praise God. The Hallel, the praises of God. Psalms 113 through 118. And they would sing these verses from the Hallel as the pilgrims made their way 
into Jerusalem. So Psalm 118.26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So the people knew what they were doing. This was considered to be a messianic psalm. But again, their, um, their understanding of who and what the Messiah would be, what he would do, they didn't have a full understanding. So they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They had it right and wrong all at the same time. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he did come in the name of the Father for the express purpose of doing the Father's will. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Another thing that we've often discussed in these Palm Sunday messages is the fact that kings, in a time of peace, they would ride a donkey. You don't need some big, vibrant, strong steed to carry you when things are peaceful. You can take a nice, peaceful stroll through town on your donkey. But in a time of war, you need a strong, powerful beast, do you not? A horse. So in times of war... The king would ride a horse. In times of peace, he would ride a donkey. Jesus was making a statement here. I didn't come to wage war. That comes later. I came to bring peace. He's known as the prince of peace. He came to bring peace to human beings, to the human heart, to the human mind, by relieving us of the burden of carrying our own sins. People didn't understand that. The people had it wrong in that they thought the Father's will, remember Jesus said, I just read it, John 6, 38, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was the Father's will? They thought it was to deliver them from Rome, when in fact the Father's will was to deliver them from their own sins by sending Jesus as the Prince of Peace and the King of Hearts to die on the cross as the sinless Lamb of God, Rome was temporary, was it not? Rome eventually fell. Rome was temporary, like every human institution, every human government. But heaven and hell are forever, right? So that's God's primary concern, his primary focus. God, if his perfect will was done, not one human being would ever go to hell. The Bible tells us that God created hell for the devil and his angels. But human beings can choose to go there by rejecting God, by rejecting his son, Jesus Christ. People will often argue, well, if God is such a loving God, why does he send people to hell? He doesn't. People send themselves there. It's your choice. It's a great thing to have free will and free choice, but you better make the right choice, right? As kids grow up and get to be teenagers and begin to approach adulthood, they begin to argue with their parents and say, you can't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want to do. It's my choice. And there comes a point, yeah, I mean, I guess legally you could say when they're 18, they're legally an adult. The only problem is you've got to make the right choices. 
And oftentimes people do not. So free will is a great thing if you use it properly. And the best thing you can ever do with your free will and your right to choose is to choose Jesus Christ. Before Jesus can come back to earth, and he said that he would, and if he says he's going to do something, he does it, right? How many of you believe Jesus is coming back? I'm glad you believe it because it's true. But before he can come back as the lion of the tribe of Judah, he had to first come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're told in the Old Testament that in the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which I can't wait to start, that the Lamb will lie with the lion. We know that we're not in the millennium yet because... Lambs and lions do not lie together. But Jesus is the lamb and the lion. See, only he can be everything. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The attributes and qualities of God are beyond description and comprehension. But he had to come first as a Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, but that was just phase one. John 1.29 The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, remember John's ministry, he was Jesus' cousin. His mother Elizabeth and Mary were cousins. John the Baptist's ministry was to do what? Prepare ye the way of the Lord, right? Make straight his paths. And so John's ministry began about six months before Jesus, and he was preparing the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah. And when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Again, to you and I, that makes perfect sense. To the people at the time, they may not have fully understood. Obviously, many people did not. But then if we go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5, 5, one of the elders said to me, and this is John the Apostle now, not John the Baptist, John's having this vision, this revelation, and he's interacting with the elders in heaven. One of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David... That alone is interesting. Jesus has many titles. Here he's referred to as the root of David. Which comes first, the plant or the root? Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was born a, a thousand years after David. No, but Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He's the eternal one. So even though he's the son of David, he's also the root of David. Revelation 5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. So he came first as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but he's coming again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I had an interesting take 
on Revelation chapter 6 the other day. I'm not necessarily endorsing it, but it certainly is interesting. How many of you ever heard of a, a lady named Dr. Stella Emanuel? Anybody? She's one of the doctors on the right side of the pandemic, if you know what I mean. She prescribed the ivermectin and the hydroxychloroquine and all the drugs that Herr Fauci did not want you to have. She's a good lady and she's a strong believer. And she was pointing out that the first seal opened in Revelation chapter 6 involves a rider going forth on a white horse. Now, in our studies in Revelation, and from what I've learned from Pastor Chuck and Tim LaHaye and different ones that I've studied with, we talked about this in our studies of Revelation. Some people have tried to say that that rider on the white horse is Jesus because the horse is white. No, but the Antichrist is the false messiah. He's the fake prince of peace. And we're told there in Revelation 6 that he goes forth to conquer and that he has a crown and a bow. Now, this is just interesting, okay? I'm not putting this forth as necessarily theologically sound. It's not heretical by any means. It's just interesting that Dr. Stella Emanuel believes, and she, okay, she has conducted two 100-day lock-in prayer meetings. So she's a pretty sharp lady, spiritually speaking. I mean, she's very committed, very dedicated. Again, we have to test all things against the scriptures, right? But she proposes that the crown there in Revelation 6 is the coronavirus. Because what does corona mean? It means crown. That's Spanish for crown, right? The, and it, if you've seen pictures of the coronavirus, it kind of looks like a crown. And so the rider on the white horse, the Antichrist, whomever he may be, or it may be. G-J, they, them. Okay? <laughs> you never know now, right? We know there are a lot of theories about how and why the coronavirus was created and released, right? Oops! <laughs> Somebody touched a nasty bat in the wet market. Or a pangolin. <laughs> how many of you ever heard of a pangolin before? Uh-oh, I'm slipping, guys. I'm slipping. I'm, 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 I'm drifting. Anyway, I'm... Doggone it. So she, she believes, and when you look at the impact that coronavirus has had on the world, now did you know, I just read this, proportionately, more people died from the Spanish flu 100 years ago Proportionally, the population was smaller then, but proportionately, more people died from the Spanish flu 100 years ago than died from coronavirus. And yet the Spanish flu didn't have near the negative impact on the world that the coronavirus has. Interesting. She believes that the crown in Revelation 6 is the coronavirus and the bow with which the Antichrist goes for to conquer is the needle. Interesting thought. Interesting thought. 
And by the way, as you dig into the scriptures, sometimes you find multiple layers of meaning in the scriptures. So again, I'm just throwing it out there as an interesting thought. No one could argue that the coronavirus has not had a massive negative impact in our world and still does. You know, there's still an international travel ban. People cannot come into our country from other countries unless they've been vaccinated. You can now go out. They can't come in. And the cruise lines only dropped their vaccine requirement in the past about three months or so. Even though we've known for quite a while now that the vaccine is harmful, that it doesn't work. One thing we do know, it's made a heck of a lot of money for all the pharmaceutical companies and Herr Fauci. Okay? I tried not to go there, folks. I, it's, it's just not in my makeup, and I don't wear makeup. even if there are rumors to that effect. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, so Jesus came the first time as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's coming back again as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Right now, you and I, His true followers, His true believers on planet Earth, His beloved saints... We know him first and foremost as that precious lamb of God whose blood washes away every sin. And at this time, Satan is known as being like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter 5.8. But you know what's really cool? Right now, Jesus is the lamb, Satan's the lion, and God's going to flip the whole thing over. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant. Christians, be sober, be vigilant. Take things seriously. Take your faith seriously. Take your walk with God seriously. And a lot of people are not doing that, folks. I just got a new book from our good friend Warren Smith. I'll be telling you about it soon. It's called Evangullible. And he's exposing the gullible church that has embraced all of the New Age beliefs, teachings, philosophies that have crept into the church. And that's why we're warned by Peter way back in the first century, be sober, be vigilant. Vigilance is a strong word, isn't it? Honestly, how many people today who identify as believers in Christ are being vigilant about their faith? How many do you think really are? I don't think there's that many. They squeeze God in when they can. Between all their other activities, and wow, I made it to church Sunday. Aren't I awesome? We need to be vigilant, sober. There's a lot of Christians around that aren't sober these days. And I mean that in the most literal sense. Not to mention just having an overall slack attitude towards spiritual things because why peter says because your adversary an adversary is, is somebody who's against you right an enemy did you know that as believers we have an enemy someone was talking to me before the service about the increase in christian persecution and i again i wasn't going to go there but it's it's relevant 
this whole transgender uprising, this militant, they want to kill Christians because we don't believe a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. It just happened in Nashville, Tennessee. So don't tell me it doesn't happen. Don't tell me it's not real. And don't tell me there weren't protests last Saturday or yesterday was called the Transgender Day of Vengeance. Are you following the news, folks? Have you heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where the men of Sodom tried to violate God's holy angels? We're there, folks. We're there. I didn't want to bring this up on Palm Sunday, but I can't help it. I just can't get away from it. Be vigilant. Be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, again, ultimately these folks in the transgender movement are not our adversary. The devil is our adversary, and he's their adversary too. They just don't know it. He's out to destroy them just like us. They just don't know it. They're his pawns. They're his puppets. He's using them. Your adversary, the devil, so, okay, that makes it pretty clear-cut, doesn't it, who our adversary is? The devil. He's a real person. For a long time, one of the devil's primary strategies was to convince people he didn't exist. I remember as a young person and as, as an immature believer, I was skeptical of the dark side. I believed in God, I believed in Jesus, believed in angels and all that, but I had friends in high school who were messing around with Ouija boards and witchcraft, and they used to love to watch Dark Shadows. I never watched that show. But, you know, I was kind of skeptical of all of that because I believed in the power of God, I believed in the good side, but I didn't understand or realize that you can't have one without the other. There are two opposing forces. Now, eventually God will do away with all that. But from the time that Satan fell and then deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, there's been this ongoing battle between the forces of light, the forces of God, and the forces of darkness, the forces of Satan. And you know what? The pivotal turning point in all of that, we will be celebrating next week. When Jesus died on the cross and he conquered the devil... He conquered sin and death. That was the turning point. But, how many of you believe every verse in the Bible is there for a reason? That God put it there. It's God-breathed, divinely inspired, God-breathed. Therefore, this verse, 1 Peter 5, 8, I guess God wanted us to hear this, didn't he? And let's read it again. Be sober. You know, there are many ways of being intoxicated, not just with alcohol or drugs. You can be intoxicated with the things of this world. Many, many things. You can be intoxicated with pornography. You can be intoxicated with entertainment. You can be intoxicated with sports. It goes on and on. Intoxication is a result of overindulgence, right? The Bible says don't be drunk with wine. Intoxication is overindulgence. And so anything that of this world, anything that touches our five senses, if you will, 
can be an intoxication. The opposite of to be intoxicated is to be sober. Peter's telling us, don't become intoxicated with the things of this world because it will distract you, it will hinder you. It will squelch your spirituality. It will squelch your spiritual growth and your spiritual strength. I mean, when someone's intoxicated, it's pretty obvious, right? They can't walk straight. Sometimes they can't stand up at all. When they try to drive, they tend to run into things. Well, apply that to any and every area of your life. What we have, our relationship with God in the Bible, it's referred to as a walk. We walk with Him. We also run the race, right? Both walking and running require sobriety. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And notice, this is Christians to whom Peter is writing. If you're not a believer, if you've not been born again, if you've not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then the devil can kind of put you on the back burner and let you percolate, simmer. You can be on fire for God or simmer for the devil. So, again, if you're not a believer, if you haven't received Christ, then... The devil can just leave you to your own devices for the most part because you're lost in sin anyway. You're deceived. You're blind. But if you're a believer, he hates your God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he hates the whole trinity. And he hates you because you're a child of God. And therefore, when Peter warns us, be sober, be vigilant, your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour everybody, but he especially wants to devour believers. Because in the devil's mind, Jesus says we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth, right? The devil says we are the scourge of the earth. We are a cancer. And how, much, how many times have you heard that lately coming from human beings? That we're the scourge of the planet. We're the cancer. We're the plague. They would be very happy to wipe out all the humans and let the dolphins run things. Not the Miami dolphins either. <laughs> right? They venerate plant life, and many of them are vegetable-like. Yes. They venerate plant life, animal life, you name it, rocks, dirt, anything above human life, right? That's why they love abortion. They just don't like it. They love it. They relish abortion. They celebrate it. Could that be anything less than satanic and demonic? It can't be. It can't be anything less than satanic and demonic. And as I've told you many times, God's pro-life, the devil's pro-death. So, God's going to turn the tables. Right now, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The devil is the roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. But look what happens over in Revelation 19.11. Now I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. 
This is Jesus' white horse, not Revelation 6, but Revelation 19. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, big F, big T, Jesus Christ, Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. This is the Jesus we saw in Revelation chapter 1. On his head were many crowns, not just a corona crown. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, the blood of the Lamb. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you and me. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. All he has to do is speak the word, and all the armies of this world, the armies of the Antichrist, will be defeated in an instant. The sword is his word. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He came as the Prince of Peace to save us from our sins. He's coming back as the King of Kings to establish his kingdom. Verse 19, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, us, then the beast was captured within the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So everything that the Jews were looking for, hoping for, expecting a warrior king, a conquering king, a military king, they didn't understand. Before he could do that, he had to die on the cross for the sins of the world. They were accurate when they basically called him their king. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, save now. But they were looking for a different type of salvation. But if you want to talk about victory, we talked about the fact that palms are a symbol of victory. What we read here in Revelation, that is the ultimate victory when Christ returns. We've already gotten the victory over sin and death. When he comes back, he's going to conquer this world and establish his kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Remember the roaring lion guy? And bound him for a thousand years. So by the time Jesus is done wiping out the armies of the Antichrist and the kings of the earth, the devil will be so whipped, it's going to take one angel to throw him into hell. You know, see folks, it wouldn't have mattered 2,000 years ago if Jesus would have defeated the Romans, which he could have done, and established the throne of David if the Israelites were still lost in their trespasses and sin. It wouldn't have mattered a bit. In fact, I've said before, you know, you talk about people who get saved in jail. That's a great thing. That's nothing to make fun of. You say, well, I've got a, God's got a captive audience there. But there are people incarcerated today who are freer than people out walking around out of jail. Because if you're in Christ, I don't care where you are, what your circumstances are, you are free. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so he could have set them free from their Roman oppressors, but they would have still been lost 
in their trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1, You, He, Jesus, made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. 1 Corinthians 15.55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. We're no longer under the law, according to the book of Romans. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So they were right when they were waving the palm branches. Jesus came to bring victory, but first and foremost, victory over sin and death. The kingdoms of this world will soon pass away. Any victory we might obtain in this life, whether it be a military victory, an athletic victory, a victory in the business world, romantic victory, I conquered her heart. Street fight, <laughs> those happen too. You name it, any kind of victory that we can obtain in this world will not last, will it? I mean, we have two world wars to prove that, plus numerous other conflicts. They called World War I the war to end all wars. Isn't that funny? And then, 20 years later, World War II. Any victory we have in this life will not last. The only victory that really matters in the end is the victory over sin and death which Christ has won for us. And then this is all happening, this celebration. Again, somewhat misguided. But nonetheless, Jesus didn't do this so that he could receive public praise and adoration. He did it to hold the nation accountable. Because throughout his earthly ministry, he always avoided the subject. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? I mean, he made references to it, but he didn't make a big deal out of it. He didn't publicly proclaim it. But on that one occasion, he did. Why did he do that? Did he be praised? No. He didn't need the praise of men. He did it for accountability because the nation was held accountable on that day by his presentation to the people as their Messiah. And then the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, so they're there, but I can guarantee you the Pharisees weren't going, Hosanna, Hosanna! Whatever kind of cuss words Pharisees used, I'm sure they were at least muttering them under their breath. They called him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples! And again, not just the twelve, there were a multitude of his followers there. Basically, they're telling Jesus to tell those people to shut up. Why? Because they cared more about their own positions of power, wealth, influence, and authority than they did about the welfare of the people or the fulfillment of God's will. Pretty sad considering they were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation, right? By the way, it's interesting, this scenario, it's still the same some 2,000 years later. Let me tell you why. One, the Jews as a whole, we know that there are more and more Jewish people coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, but as a whole, the Jews are still looking for a political slash military Messiah. They are surrounded on every side by enemies. Their very existence is constantly at threat. They are still looking for a Messiah who's a political, military Messiah, not a one who will die on the cross for their sins. He already did that. 
They missed it. But we're told in the book of Zechariah that they will look on him whom they've pierced and they will weep and they will mourn and they will recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Secondly, the people who run this world, otherwise known as the sons of the devil, are still trying to prevent Jesus from taking his rightful place as the king of kings, are they not? Thirdly, these same guys and gals, if you will, are trying to make Jesus' disciples shut up, aren't they? They would be very happy for us to shut up and go away. We will soon. And maybe they won't be so happy that we did once it happens. Verse 40, But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out, not Mick and Keith, but the rocks on the ground. Although they do seem to be old enough, don't they, that they could have possibly, <laughs> possibly been there. Folks, at that moment, Jesus is saying, this has to happen. You can't stop it. And even if I were to tell them to be quiet, all of creation would begin to cry out. And you know what? The rocks are still crying out, folks. Our good friend Fred Doty wrote a little booklet about that a number of years ago based upon geology and archaeology and so forth. The earthquakes, the geology, the archaeology, the caves of Qumran where they found all the Dead Sea Scrolls, the stars, the planets, the comets, the meteors, they're all getting louder and louder. Do you know that? They're all crying out, trying to tell us that the return of Christ is near. The end of this present age is near. Things are about to take a radical turn for the better. And so, although Jesus' donkey ride from Bethphage to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is often referred to as the triumphal entry. I'm going to show you the real triumphal entry. It's found in the book of Revelation, Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Why does he say dine? Because that was the ultimate sign of friendship, fellowship, closeness. Remember, Jesus was criticized for dining with sinners, remember? Why did he dine with sinners? He said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I didn't come for those who were well. I came for those who were sick. Of course, the truth of the matter is we're all sick. We all need a Savior, right? He says, I'm knocking at the door. If you open the door, I'll come in and I'll dine with you. I'll have fellowship with you. I'll have re intimate relationship with you. How many of you have already done that? You've opened the door to Jesus. That is the ultimate triumphal entry when he entered your heart. Most important triumph of all triumphant entries. The most triumphant of all triumphal entries is what I was trying to say. When Jesus enters the door of your heart, takes up residence there as the Savior King of your life. So it's important if anyone is here today and doesn't have that relationship with God or if anybody's watching online. I would encourage you, don't be like the people of Israel who missed their Messiah on that fateful day just over 2,000 years ago. All the while they were singing, cheering, waving palm branches. Think about that. Having a great celebration for the right person, but for all the wrong reasons. Verse 41, now as he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, 
He saw the city and wept over it. So again, Jesus did not see this as some joyous celebration because he knew the people didn't understand at all who he was or what he came to do. Saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. This is referred to as their day of visitation, especially this your day, your day of visitation. The one day during which Jesus, uh, while here on earth, publicly presented himself as their Messiah. I believe there are key moments in a person's life when God presents himself to them in an especially profound way. I've had several of those. I've shared this before, but I want to share it again because it's in the context of what we're talking about. When I was 16, my mother was terminally ill. My father had already passed away four years earlier. I had not been in church for several years. But I had started to read my Bible again. God was getting my attention, and I seemed to be especially gravitating towards scriptures about the return of Christ and about being prepared or not being prepared. I knock on my door one day there in Scottsdale, Arizona, the poor side of town. From what I understand, the poor side of town now is <laughs> its still not the rich side, but it's still very expensive. But he comes to my door. It was a young adult guy, and he was involved with a ministry there in Phoenix, a Christian house ministry. And I think my old youth pastor, uh, pastor had sent him. And he's telling me, uh, I came today to tell you that God wants you to come back to him. And immediately I said, yeah, I think you're right. So we went out to my garage and we prayed. But I didn't have to receive him, did I? I could have said, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested, buddy. Go away. Leave me alone. Do people do that? Yeah, they do. I'm not interested. Leave me alone. Go away. That was a moment of visitation for me. This guy shows up out of the blue. And I mean, I lived way on the east side of Phoenix there in South Scottsdale. Which back, I mean, that was on the edge of town back in those days. The guy travels all the way across town just to come to my door and tell me, God wants you to come back to him. So I went with my, into my garage and I prayed with him. A few months later, my mother died and I was on my way to California to live with my aunt and uncle who were believers and immediately told me, we go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday evening, and you will too. <laughs> Again, I could have pitched a hissy fit Fought, scratched, kicked, and screamed, but I went along with them, and I went to church, and I got involved in a youth group that was really on fire for the Lord, and that was the turning point in my life. And again, coupled in with all that, that moment of visitation, within five years, I lost both of my parents, and I could have chosen to be mad at God. I could have been angry at God. I said, God, if that's how you operate, I'm done with you. A lot of people do that too. But you know what? I had a sense this sounds crazy. I'm only 16. I turned 17 two months after my mother died. But I had this sense, this is God doing this. He's directing my life in a certain direction. He has a plan and a purpose for me. Sadly, it involved me losing both of my parents. But again, that was a moment of visitation, a challenge from God. Maybe your earthly father's gone, but I'm your heavenly father, and I will never leave you or forsake you. 
And God totally uprooted me, changed the direction of my life, because at that point I was playing in a secular rock and roll band. My goal was to be a rock star, to make my living playing rock and roll music. I had no intention of becoming a Christian singer, worship leader, pastor. It wasn't even in my purview. Although as I look back, I sensed a calling on my life from the time I was very young. But I believe with all my heart, people do have, just like Jesus said, you guys, he wept over Jerusalem. You've missed your day, your visitation. And he wept over them because of it. I believe there are key times in a person's life where God is especially trying to reach them in a very profound way. But you still have that choice we talked about at the beginning of the message. God's given you the choice. He will not force you to receive him, to accept him, to follow him. But those who choose to ignore his visitation, they may fail to come to a saving knowledge of him going forward. Not that he won't continue to pursue them. But if you remember the parable of the sower, the seed fell on hard ground, it fell on shallow ground, other ground, it was choked out by the weeds. In the parable of the sower, only one of the four plantings proved fruitful. Same seed, different soil. We talk about things that we can pray for our unbelieving friends and family. I always tell you, pray for them to get the gift of faith, the gift of repentance. We can also pray that God will prepare the soil of their hearts because otherwise the seed will not take root and grow and bring forth fruit. Pray that when those moments of visitation come, that they will respond. Way back in the days of Noah, by the way, Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. You know we're in the days of Noah now? What was the days of Noah like? The thoughts of men's hearts was only evil all the time. Right? The days of Lot. Jesus said it'll be like Lot, it'll be like Noah. Folks, if you don't think we're there, then I don't know what planet you're from, okay? <laughs> we're there. Because in Genesis 6, we're told the Spirit of God will not always strive with the Spirit of man. There are many mistakes people make as they try to relate to God. One of the mistakes they make, well, you know, if I'm wrong and he's right, there'll always be another opportunity. That's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily true. For one thing, we don't know what's going to happen the minute we walk out of this room. We've seen a lot of that the last couple of years. People departing that we never expected to depart. Praise God, most of the ones I can think of knew Jesus and we know where they are. But not everybody who departs this world knows Jesus. And they're not going to be with God for all eternity. You know, it's important when you have that moment of visitation that you respond to it. Not that God will give up on you, but there's a hardening of the heart that takes place too. When God knocks on that door and you keep refusing to open it, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder. That's why they say statistically, I know we can't discount the miraculous work of God's Holy Spirit, but statistically, by the time a person reaches 70 years old, if they haven't received Christ, they probably never will. Isn't that interesting? 
Because the longer you resist him and reject him, the harder it gets to do so. And if you are touched by the grace of God in your later years, and it does happen, you better jump on it. You better not wait. But you know what? It's never too early to receive Christ. I did it as a preschooler, and I've never regretted it. No matter how young or old you are, it's never too soon. It could be too late, but it's never too soon. All right, the day of visitation. He says, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, the good news, the gospel of salvation from sin through Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The things that make for your peace. They thought their peace would be made by kicking out the Romans, having their country back under their own control. But Jesus said, you rejected the things that make for your peace. Salvation that comes through faith in me, my blood shed on the cross of Calvary. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. They're now hidden from your eyes. Now why is that? Not because Jesus had blinded their eyes, but because they had refused to see. The truth about who Jesus is, what he came to do and successfully accomplished, is not hidden from my eyes or your eyes. We have the Holy Scriptures to make them known to us. We have the Holy Spirit available to us to open our eyes, to enlighten us, to illuminate us. Through the divinely inspired, God-breathed Holy Scriptures, God has made known to us the full revelation of who, what, when, why, and how Jesus has brought to all who will receive it eternal victory over sin and death. The message of Palm Sunday is a message of victory, not from a military power, but from the vi victory over our own sin, which leads to death. We said that, I said that this is the real triumphal entry. When Christ, you open that door to him and he comes in to live inside of you. So one final question as we close this morning. Have you, I trust that most of you have, but maybe someone here hasn't. Maybe somebody watching online hasn't. Have you allowed Jesus to triumphantly enter the door of your heart? No better day than today and no better time than right now. Let's stand. Let's bow our heads as we go to the Lord in prayer. And I do want to begin by inviting anyone here this morning who does not have a personal relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. There could be someone. I don't want to overlook that fact and just assume that everyone here today is a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. You could be someone who has even gone to church for years and never really taken that plunge, never really opened the door to Him. I would encourage you to do so today. You could be someone who's been drifting. It happens sometimes. We've talked about that, being sober, being vigilant. Maybe you haven't been. Maybe you've, those moments of visitation, you've not responded properly as you should have, and you've allowed yourself to become angry with God, bitter at God. You've turned away from God. It's possible. And I just would encourage you right now to pray with me. Before we go to the Lord with other prayer requests, I want to pray a prayer for those who would like to receive Christ as Lord and Savior or those who would like to recommit their life to Him here today or online. So pray along with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, 
to die on the cross for me. Father, I do confess right now that I am a sinner. I've sinned many times. But I thank you that you have promised me forgiveness of sin and eternal salvation because of Christ's blood shed on the cross for me. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name to please forgive me of my sins, to come and live inside of me, to be my Lord and Savior, to fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me the strength that I need to live for you, to follow you all the days of my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. And for those who maybe have done that in the past but are no longer walking, I would encourage you to pray something like this. Father, I know I've been drifting away from you. I've been falling away. I've been pursuing my own path. Please forgive me. Please restore me, Lord. I also confess that I am a sinner, desperately in need of a Savior. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for me. I ask you, Lord, to bring me back into the fold, to restore me into right relationship with you. Give me the strength, Lord, that I need to stand firm in my faith and not to waver or doubt or turn away again. I pray this in Jesus' name. And if anyone else has a prayer request here this morning, please raise your hand. I'd like to pray for you right now. Many hands across the auditorium. Father, you see each one. You know each one. You know what's going on. Lord, we've got health issues we need help with. We've got sicknesses, diseases, injuries. Lord, we pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon each and every one here today who has a request for health-related issues. We pray for healing, for restoration, for strengthening. Lord, whether it's um, arthritis, uh, whether it's a respiratory issue, whether it's cancer, Lord... You're a God of miracles. We've seen it many times. And Lord, there are some miracles needed even in this room here this morning, Lord, and you know who they are and what they are. So we pray for your miraculous healing power to be poured out upon your people right now. In Jesus' name. Lord, strengthen our faith. Lord, we know that your word says all it takes is the faith of a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed to move a mountain. Lord, just impart to us that faith that we need to trust you uh, to believe you, Lord, we ask you to impart hope, faith, and strength to us. And we do pray, Lord, for mercy, that you would graciously pour out your healing upon your people, not only physically, but we also pray for mental and emotional issues. Those can be just as devastating, if not more so. Pray for deliverance for those who are struggling with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief. Lord, just minister to your people. Lord, you promised us the mind of Christ. We ask that you would do that. You would impart to us the mind of Christ that we might think like our Lord and Savior, that we might see what he sees, hear what he hears, do what he does, Lord. Strengthen us mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And Lord, we pray for relationships that have been broken or damaged. Lord, the enemy is always coming to steal, to kill, to destroy. We ask that you'd restore marriages, friendships, other family member relationships that have been broken or damaged, Lord, we know that the enemy wants to divide and conquer, but we ask that you'd bring us back together in unity and harmony, that you'd help us to be instruments of your reconciliation, Lord. Help us to be peacemakers. You've called us to do that. Help us to be the first ones to reach out the olive branch and try to make peace wherever possible. And Lord, where we cannot, 
We ask you to give us peace in our hearts and help us to trust you for an ultimate positive outcome. Lord, please heal those relationships, we pray in Jesus' name. And finally, we pray for economics, Lord. It's a troubling time that we're in now. It could get a lot worse, but we ask that you'd help us to keep our eyes on you. We trust you. We know that you are our provider. Lord, no matter who writes the paycheck, you are ultimately our provider. Help us to keep our eyes on you, trusting you, not leaning to our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledging you. You promise to direct our paths. And we ask for wisdom, supernatural wisdom on how to navigate these difficult waters, financial waters that we're now finding ourselves in. Give us wisdom on how to best manage our resources and Lord, where the resources are lacking. We ask that you would just provide by whatever means you choose to do so. We thank you and we praise you and we ask you to receive this final offering of praise now in Jesus' name. Amen.